If you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. I'm sure everyone's heard some version of this sentiment, and I do think it's true. Canadian cities tend to undervalue their past, maybe because it's recent history compared to those ancient old world cities. Maybe it's because so many of us come from somewhere else and our histories take us there. Maybe both. But our cities do have hundreds of years of history and thousands of years of First Nations history beside, and we ignore it at our detriment. On the other hand, there's great value in knowing and articulating where we want to be as a city. Urban planner types call it visioning. Now, this isn't something out of the secret, but it takes a lot for something as large and collective as a city to reach goals if those goals are vague and the steps to get there are undefined. It's one thing to say we value something as a city. It's another thing altogether to decide how our actions, our decision-making, our tax dollars, and collective energy will be marshaled in the name of our values. If you can't envision your future, you can't live it. Actually, I guess it, it is sort of like the secret. This is Spacing Radio. are back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we speak to Graham Haynes, research manager at Ryerson City Building Institute, about helping municipalities in the Greater Golden Horseshoe protect valuable green space while adding places for people to live. And we speak to Karen Carter, executive director of Museum of Toronto, about the opportunity to create a museum dedicated to this city's history. But first... The city of Hamilton is about to vote on a plan for how that city should develop. The plan balances the need to grow with the need to preserve the city's character. Jason Thorne is Hamilton's chief planner, and we reach him by phone. Stand by. Hamilton City Council is about to uh, consider uh, something called the proposed Downtown Hamilton Secondary Plan. Can you tell us about that? That's right. We have a new secondary plan that we've been working on for for actually for a couple of years now. There's been several rounds of of consultation, and we just released the latest draft this week, and it will go to council for consideration on April the 17th. Uh, So this is a new plan for for an official plan amendment for the downtown. At the same time, we're bringing forward uh, zoning bylaw amendment, as well as tall building guidelines. We're bringing everything forward all together, um, and it covers all of downtown Hamilton. And what was kind of the uh, the impetus for, for drawing up this uh, new new secondary plan? Well, the real impetus was the amount of development inter- interest we're starting to see in Hamilton. So uh, the former secondary plan is uh, you know, over 10 years old now mm-hmm. and was done at a time when development interest in downtown Hamilton was um, was rare, um, and certainly what we were seeing at that time in downtown, we weren't seeing a lot of uh, pressure or interest for higher density, for taller buildings. Um, so the secondary plan, the old one, certainly contemplated some of those uses, but not to the, to, the, to the magnitude of what we're experiencing right now. So a big part of what this secondary plan is focused on now is, is how do you plan for a downtown in the face of a lot of development interest, which is, which is a great thing, and we mm-hmm. love to see it. But we want to make sure that we are protecting the things that we think are really important, the, the, the affordability, the, the mix of housing, the, uh, the heritage elements, all of those sorts of good things that are, that are frankly what's making Hamilton so attractive right now. 
that we don't lose all of that in this wave of development interest that we're seeing. Right. And some of the features of the secondary plan include uh, pre-zoning, uh, which is uh, something that Ryerson, uh, a report coming out of Ryerson recently recommended for, for all municipalities in the Greater Golden Horseshoe. Uh, can, you, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we really want to make sure that at the end of the day, what we've got in place in the downtown, that the policies are development ready. So that was one of the reasons, for example, why we're doing the secondary plan and the zoning at the same time. We don't want to have that three, four, five-year time lag between your zoning and your official plan. That is sometimes the case. We want to have mm-hmm. it all in place at the same time. Um, and we want to be, we want to establish our permissions, our land use permissions, our density and height permissions, where we want them to be. This is We, we didn't want to come forward and say, okay, we're, we're going to underzone everything. Um, and then negotiate everything on a, on a property-by-property basis. That's not the direction we want to go. We want to say, look, this is what we think is appropriate for the downtown. Um, let's put those permissions in place. Um, now, with that said, we want to make sure we have uh, protections for some of those important things. So we have used, I think it's a fairly novel approach. Um, what we've used is the is holding provisions on some of the zoning to make sure that we're getting, for example, the heritage protection, to make sure that we're creating an opportunity for um, some Section 37 agreements around things like affordable housing. Um, so in some cases, there's there's a holding on the zoning, um, but at least the, the 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 parent zoning bylaw is in place. So those heights and density permissions at the maximum of what we would support, um, those are written in. Um, so that's where um, this idea of of pre zoning and having all of the policies in place to support the development we want to see, it's there. So we are hopefully making it as easy as possible when a, when a applicant or developer comes forward. Um, to do a project in the downtown, uh, we're hoping it is as um, as quick and easy as it can possibly be uh, to make that happen. Right, and uh, you, you mentioned affordable housing. Uh, w- one thing I noticed uh, that was included in this sort of plan is um, y- y- the idea of bonusing, you know, rewarding for our listeners, rewarding. Uh, uh, rewarding extra height or you know uh, something that's a little bit uh, beyond what uh, what the, they can build as of right uh, you're looking built into the plan is is that okay you can you can have these extra stories or you can you can build that sort of courtyard that doesn't quite gel with our existing uh, bylaws but uh, you you do have to make uh, some sort of accommodation for affordable housing within this new development yes that's exactly right so we are putting in section 37 bonusing provisions which is new for Hamilton we haven't used it before I know I know Toronto has and some other municipalities have um, we haven't used it in Hamilton um, but we are putting it in place, but we're doing it a little bit differently, I think, than what some other communities have done. Um, so yes, what we're saying is there is a there is an as of right permission, um, mm. and if you want to go above that, um, we will be having you know a discussion around these section thirty seven agreements for things like affordable housing. But it's not open ended, and that's the key thing. As we've said, look, the the, the maximum height permissions, for example, um, we've established those, and and so it's not a question of saying okay, there's a certain height limit or density limit, but if certain public benefits are provided, then it's, uh, it's you know, blow the doors wide open, the sky's the limit, and we'll negotiate something. No, mm-hmm. there's very clear upper limits. Um, so what we've said is there's an as-of-right permission uh, that, generally speaking, is about 44 meters. Um, if you want to go to the full maximum height permission, um, which we have established as the height of the Niagara Escarpment, right. um, then to get to that full potential height permission, you would have to apply to remove a holding provision, and that's tied to agreements around certain public benefits, such as affordable housing. 
Right. And uh, I, th- I thought that was also a really interesting uh, feature of the plan, uh, you know, sort of setting the height limits that, that no building can exceed the height of the escarpment itself and that you're also going to preserve something that is probably one of the most iconic things about uh, Hamilton is, is that ability to like sort of look up a street and, and see the sort of city rise up into the escarpment and the, the escarpment sort of hovering above. So that's, that's in the plan to, to sort of preserve that very iconic view. Yeah, certainly. I mean, height limits and densities are always a, a, a contentious debate around any land use plan, any secondary plan. And, and downtown Hamilton was no different. And we spent a lot of time talking about what is appropriate. And what kept coming back in terms of a really important community value was how much, how important the Niagara Scarpment was to people and how this is a really cherished landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a defining landscape for for Hamilton. And it and it really kind of is that that natural backdrop to, to our downtown. And we didn't, we didn't want to lose that. And so that's where through these, you know, these, these rounds of consultation, this idea of establishing that as, as the height limit for the downtown re- really emerged um, that we don't want to have any buildings taller than the escarpment, which, which generally speaking comes up around 30 stories. And then these, as you said, these North South views where you can be standing in a, a very urban downtown context, it's, it's dense, there's tall buildings around you, but if you look south, you can still see the trees. You can still see the Niagara Scarpment. We wanted to make sure those views are preserved. Yeah. So we've identified certain ones in particular that new development's going to have to respect. We don't want new development crowding in and closing off those important views. It's definitely something special and worth protecting. Um, this this study seems to me like uh, we sometimes talk about visioning studies. This this secondary plan seems to be a visioning study on, on a massive scale, like for for the entire city of Hamilton. Is that fair to say? Well, the, it, it's certainly establishing the vision for for the downtown and how the downtown's going to grow. And city of Hamilton's always identified downtown Hamilton as as an area where we wanted to see growth, where we wanted to see redevelopment, and and. You know, the unfortunate thing is for, 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 for several decades, actually, there, there was very little happening in downtown Hamilton. It had kind of stagnated. Mm-hmm. Now we're starting to really see that interest, and, 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 and we love that, and that's great. And so this plan is really about, you know, this is, this is kind of the first plan for the downtown that has brought, been brought in place in an era where things are really starting to happen and things are really starting to change. Uh, so, you know, this isn't one of those situations where you're going to write a plan, but but you're probably never going to see the development to implement the plan. No, the development's happening. Um, but, you know, this this plan is actually shaping and molding actual development and actual change. And uh, and the hope is that um, in the years to come, we're going to see uh, more of our heritage buildings restored, more of the buildings that have been sick, sitting vacant for, you know, in some cases, a generation or two more of that starting to be revitalized. Some of the vacant lots, the surface parking lots that we see in our downtown core, those starting to get redeveloped. We've been we've, we've been seeing it for the past couple of years mm-hmm. and this plan really sets the framework now to to see a lot more of that, to make those sorts of developments as, as simple and straightforward as possible, while at the same time making sure that that growth and that development um, you know, Bring some benefits and bring some improvements that 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 benefits all of the the existing residents. Are we talking generally uh, sort of gentle density mid-rise kind of thing infill? There's going to be a mix. Um, so most of the area in the downtown's been been designated for for mixed use developments, so okay. a mix of, of of commercial and residential. We have certain um, what we talk about as pedestrian focused streets, um, our major commercial streets where we're actually going to require. Uh, commercial retail uses on on the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Other areas um, will be supportive of of standalone residential, but we want to make sure our our key commercial streets uh, maintain that 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 function. Right. Uh, the um, and then the height limits 
you know, the, the, the interesting thing about Hamilton that's very different than if you go to the other GTA municipalities, whether it's, um, you know, Mississauga or, or Newmarket or Vaughan, is that, you know, this is a very old and, and established downtown area. There already is an urban fabric, a street fabric. There's the context of all the existing heritage buildings around it. So right. even though the height permissions, you know, generally we have we have a large area that's designated for, for, for higher density development in accommodating what's already there. I think we're going to see quite a varied form across the downtown. Well, some areas where we will see um, larger developments, you know, podium style developments with a 30 story tower. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of other areas, just by necessity, we're going to see a lot more um, adaptive reuse, mixed use, mid rise, as you said, sort of that, that, that gentle infill. Right. There's been recently changes to the Ontario Municipal Board, the sort of board that uh, mediates between uh, municipalities and, and developers often. Do you, do you see if this secondary plan goes through uh, that that will sort of save both the city and developers a, a headache at the OMB? Well, I think, I mean, we want to have a plan where the developers had clear expectations as what what was going to be supportable and what was going to be achievable, and the and the residents did as well. We mm-hmm. we didn't want to have a situation where we were artificially putting a a six story permission, knowing full well that um, something more intense was going to get developed on that site. Right. We also didn't want to create a bunch of you know forty, fifty, sixty story permissions that we didn't think were actually feasible or reasonable given given our market. So um, this is really you know. We hope we've established fairly clear expectations, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the hope and the expectation is that applications are going to come forward. They're going to be consistent with that zoning, um, and that for the most part, we'll have applications be able to not require an official plan amendment, not require a rezoning. They'll just be able to come in. They'll go to site plan. We'll deal with some of the the very specific site plan issues, and then you get to your building permit. So hopefully, this becomes a a speedier way to get to a. Uh, to get to a development approval. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, the the reason for putting in some of those holding provisions is we don't want to lose those opportunities to make sure we're protecting heritage buildings and make sure we're identifying appropriate public benefits. As well, this couldn't come at a better time, uh, and, and I'm sure that it's uh, no accident that Hamilton has been in the news recently about uh, sort of anxiety about uh, the gentrification that, that's happening there. A lot of people are finding Toronto unaffordable, and, and they're looking to Hamilton as a an attractive alternative, but uh, I, I think some people in, in Hamilton feel like they are getting pushed out. Yeah, the, the 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 question of affordability has certainly become more and more top of mind as we're starting to see some of the some of the development happen downtown. And uh, although someone coming from Toronto may look at Hamilton and say, "Oh, it's it's, it's fantastic. That that that's very affordable. A, a, a condo building going at you know four fifty a square foot right. seems very affordable." If you're coming from the Toronto market, but you have to keep in mind that. You know, in, in Hamilton, we have a number of low-income people who have traditionally migrated to the to the area of downtown Hamilton, and we, and we don't want to see them squeezed out. We want to make sure that the growth that's coming continues to accommodate those individuals as well. And that's why the the integration of uh, varying levels of affordability, varying levels of tenure, to the extent that we can um, mandate that and push that in our in our policies, um, that's what we've tried to do with the secondary plan. Hamilton City Councilors will consider this plan April 17th. But Hamilton isn't the only city that needs to grapple with the way it wants to develop. 
The Greater Toronto and Hamilton area is booming, and every town within it has so-called intensification targets that they're looking to reach, to grow, develop, and add to their housing stock while preserving park, natural, and agricultural land as much as possible. Ryerson City Building Institute has published a new report dubbed Getting Intense that looks to provide these municipalities with proactive strategies to reach these goals. Here's Ryerson's research manager, Graham Haynes. So, Graham, you have a new report coming out of Ryerson? Yeah, we've been looking at some of the province's policies around the growth plan and how to how cities can better plan for intensification, which I think most municipalities, whether it's in Ontario or other provinces, really struggle with. So we have a new report coming out called Getting Intense that tries to get to the heart of those issues. And, and to what extent are, are uh, municipalities in the greater Golden Horseshoe uh, sort of legislatively bound to to try these intensification Right. Um, so, I mean, in Ontario, we, there is legislation for the communities in the Greater Golden Horseshoe through the growth plan. Um, so, the old growth plan had a target of forty percent of all new growth, all new units had to go to intensification areas. So, that's existing parts of your city. So, that might be you know like anywhere in Toronto, or if you're in Mississauga, like downtown Mississauga, rather than new suburban growth. Um, those targets are going up through the updated growth plan that was released last year, eventually to sixty percent. So, more than half of the growth in all our municipalities has to be in existing parts of our city. Right. And part of the reason for that is that we are trying to protect this, uh, what's called the green belt, this sort of uh, area of green land, uh, undeveloped land around our municipalities that we're trying to preserve for ecological reasons and, and for other reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's like some of the most valuable natural capital and agriculture land in Canada. Um, it's got like key watersheds, like I say, key farmland, some of the most productive farmland in the country. So it's not just for protecting it because we like green space, but because it's really good green space. Um, so what what are municipalities, generally speaking, uh, you know, Toronto and, and the surrounding area, what are they doing currently uh, in terms of intensification? So, I mean, we're seeing intensification happen on really an ad hoc basis in most places where it's it's really developer advanced. There might be some planning at a municipal level to allow for intensification, but we're really still re- relying on developers to put forward plans, go through a rezoning process to see if their their application, you know, makes sense for the municipality and then go from there. And that's that's one of the challenges is most municipalities are really doing intensification even though it's now legislatively required on this ad hoc basis. And you compare that to greenfield development where municipalities are planning, you know, how much land they should be developing over a 25-year period and thinking ahead of like, okay, how are we going to sequence these different lands? When do we open them up? What infrastructure do we need? And then you compare that to uh, intensification, which is just ad hoc, and you start to see some of these challenges that we're going to face. And I imagine that uh, that, that ad hoc uh, sort of nature, uh, the, that ad hoc approach to this kind of thing is uh, often based on sort of pre-existing zoning and bylaws, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that municipalities have really always grown out rather than up. We've protected the neighborhoods we've built, sort of put them in place, said, okay, we built that neighborhood, let's move on to the next one. We've got the zoning in place to keep that neighborhood the way it is. But intensification planning means our cities have to change, our neighborhoods will change. Um, so yeah, that that's really where it comes from. Uh, can you can you sort of uh, pull out some of the salient points from this uh, uh, from this new report? One of the things we think really needs to happen is that municipalities need to do a better job studying where they have intensification opportunities and how big those opportunities are. So we actually looked to the United Kingdom, which has this pretty crazy process called strategic housing land availability assessments. 
And there are these like hugely wonkish reports where they look at basically every available site within their boundaries, figure out how much housing it could deliver, um, what the constraints to delivering that housing are, and how quickly that housing could be brought to the market. So, I mean, if there's huge economic constraints, they might be like, okay, that site's 25 years away. But for more immediate sites, you know, they'll put that in their five-year plan. And really, it gives them a picture of where and when they can build housing, what type of infrastructure they need to support that housing. And it it really goes way beyond what we do as far as planning, especially for intensification goes, because they're they're identifying and prioritizing where to build housing. Right, this sort of concept of uh, pre-zoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the, the cool things about those studies they do in the UK is they sort of have to ignore existing policy. So if there's zoning that says, well, you can't put an apartment building there, they might you know, through this process, look at that policy and say, well, you know what, an apartment does make sense there. Let's look at how we change the change the policies in place. And in terms of a, like a place like Toronto, what um, what are we looking at in terms of uh, land that is under uh, underdeveloped uh, due to these sort of like pre-existing zoning? I mean, in Toronto, we've seen growth mostly go to, to what I did. Sean McAuliffe who sort of came up with the term hero neighborhoods. They're these neighborhoods that are absorbing all our growth, basically, you know, the Liberty Villages, the city places, Young and Eglinton. Um, so almost everywhere else in our city is sort of going underutilized. We talk about, you know, we had a huge strategy to put mid-rise on our avenues, and yet that remains a struggle because if you're going to go through a rezoning process, you might as well do it for a high-rise instead of a mid-rise. Um, there's tons of talk about the yellow belt um, and the opportunity to add gentle density into our neighborhoods. And there's been some great research, um, one by a student at Ryerson named Cheryl Case, looking at a lot of these neighborhoods are actually losing population over time. So, I mean, finding ways to revitalize and sort of restock or like rebuild the housing stock in those neighborhoods actually would bring a lot of value. Um, and then recently, just before the holidays, uh, Ken Greenberg, who's one of our board members, looked at there's also opportunities to sort of rethink some of the areas that are traditionally just left for employment, like some of those employment lands. So you think back to the 1990s when Toronto redesignated the two kings, sort of king and Spadina and king and parliament to be for residential and the huge opportunity that came with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's tons of places we're underutilizing um, and could easily accommodate housing if we were more proactive about planning. Can you sort of, uh, you know, the, the report talks a lot about uh, land needs assessments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, that, that might be a little foreign to a lot of our listeners. So can you kind of take us through this this process? Like you're a developer yeah. and you want to uh, see if you can build a sort of intensification project. Yeah, so land needs assessments oddly don't have a lot to do in, with intensification. And that's one of the the things we we pointed to is land needs assessments are a tool we're using to implement the growth plan that just says how much land do you need to grow and it's really about the greenfield component of land it it doesn't look at what are the opportunities to reduce land consumption it just sort of says okay you need you know a thousand new housing units in new subdivisions how much land do you need for that based on the growth plans requirements and i think that's actually the challenge is if we want intensification and the growth plan says we need to, mm-hmm. I think, you know, the reasons we have the growth plan are great. Like we should be protecting our green belt. Then we need that type of assessment on intensification lands as well. We need to say, okay, you need this many housing units in your existing built up area. How are you going to get there? And are you going to provide options? Is it going to be like this, like this hard and fast, there's only one way to get your a thousand housing units. And that's, you know, your city places and your young and Eglinton's. Are we going to give people options a way to build different types of housing, different types of tenure, um, you know, different forms of housing, different areas of the city to get developed. Mm-hmm. Looking forward, um, you know, when these areas do, uh, and hopefully they do for the reasons you say, uh, when they do become intensified, um, 
does the infrastructure tend to follow uh, like you know the the supporting infrastructure um i think that's the idea of having a strong plan and identifying where those housing opportunities are is you can you can plan that infrastructure more progressively if you sort of put in place pre-zoning as well as infrastructure investment Mm -hmm. you can be ready for the coming housing and i mean we've seen some good examples of this in municipalities across the gta it's just sort of not standard practice so i mean toronto uh, has done some pre-zoning along St. Clair, for example, that has made mid-rise more easy. easy. Um, Hamilton is looking at pre-zoning their downtown neighborhood for more density, um, especially with the new LRT lines coming there. So, I mean, there are opportunities. Right. Um, it's just sort of making those types of practices, pre-zoning and planning infrastructure, regular and like the the, ex- the expected standard for planning. And when we talk about the need for intensification, uh, you know, because uh, there, there is a lot of pushback often in neighborhoods, these sort of stable neighborhoods, as, as they're sometimes called, uh, you know, it, it's maybe nostalgia, it's it's maybe um, sort of uh, antipathy towards renters or, you know, uh, there's all kinds of class and, mm-hmm. and different struggles uh, at play. Uh, but um, we... Uh, we in Toronto, and, and I imagine in a, a lot of surrounding uh, GTA municipalities, we have this sort of affordability crisis that just keeps ballooning. Um, so what are the stakes? Why do we need this intensification beyond just uh, avoiding pressing into the green belt? What could it mean for affordability if we start adding these sort of gentle density, mid-rise growth in neighborhoods that can support it? I think really the big goal is to give both people that are seeking housing and those that are looking to build housing more options. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that supply is going to solve all our problems because, I mean, government policy has a huge role to play in how housing is financed, how we pay for it, mm-hmm. how developers pay for it. Um, but giving people more opportunities. I mean, right now, if you want to live in something that is relatively family-friendly in Toronto, there's almost nothing new being built. Um, there's very few two-bedroom and three-bedroom condo units being built, very few townhouse units being built. And we need to make those things easier if we want families to stay in Toronto over the long term. And I mean, I think traditionally we think of Toronto as a place where you could have a family. Um, But if we continue to, you know, put 75% of the new housing on the market as a a one-bedroom or a studio, that is going to change. Um, So it's really about creating those options for families and for people to age in place in Toronto. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about building a Toronto museum. This year, City Council approved a plan to look at renovating Old City Hall for that purpose, at least in principle. Museum of Toronto Executive Director Karen Carter walks us through what seems like a critical mass around a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to celebrate our city's past. So I'll begin with uh, sort of an obvious question, but I think it is an important one. Uh, Why do we need a museum for the City of Toronto? Toronto is, I believe, probably the most diverse city in the world. If not, it's definitely right up there with the Londons and New Yorks. Um, And I think that a city of this uh, stature with those many different people from all over the world finding a place here, whether you're, you know, five, six generations back or your roots are back to the indigenous peoples, this this complex, diverse range of people who live in a place like this, that is a story that should be told, not just to reflect on where we were, but also to have a better sense of our identity and who we are now. And frankly, to map and reflect on what our possibilities are for the future. I think 
not having a museum is a part of our identity crisis. And I think uh, until we fill that gap in our identity, um, it's like someone walking around not having a clear sense of their paternity. You have there's an identity gap there that um, I, I think this city needs a museum in order to help what I feel is in an adolescent stage so you can grow into an adult um, effectively and, and, you know, grow old well. And uh, the the call for a Toronto museum has, it's been a long time coming. There, there have been a lot of different pushes for it. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, the sort of history for this this sort of push? Yeah, I, I'm, I worked at the city um, in uh, mid-2000s uh, in 06, uh, or actually 08 to 010. Uh, on the last formal attempt that was made when they were looking at the Canada Malting Silo site. And prior to that, the, the records that go back um, at least 40 years and frankly, even before there were discussions in the early part of the 20th century about the need for a museum. So um, there have been uh, many formal and informal attempts and the conversation's been out there for a long time. Uh, David Crombie is one of our founding board members at Myzeum, has always been a big champion since his foray into political leadership as mayor for Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I mean, I think getting into details and the nuances around why things have failed aren't necessary, but I do think it's important for people to know that there are people who have been championing this idea and um, we're lucky that someone like a David is still around and it would be nice for this to finally happen partly so that some of those people who are now in their 80s can actually say they live to see it happen. Right. Um, and also, frankly, because it shows because the momentum has never really gone away. Um, I always say that in lieu of the city's formal attempts, there have always been citizens interested in keeping this on the agenda. And Diane and her husband, Stephen Smith, their leadership points to that when they were looking as uh, supporters and lovers of history and heritage. It's something to do to give back to the city. This was one of the things that came to them through people who had lived here and been here longer because both her and her husband have been in this city since the 80s. She's from the UK and Stephen's from Ottawa. And these are the people that sort of uh, founded Myzeum. Yeah, yeah. So they're the financial uh, supporters that have allowed Myzeum to come into uh, being. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, it's it, it's been around for a long time, and there have been a lot of formal attempts at the building with the collection, um, and and people have been trying to make what we know as the traditional museum model happen. That hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. So Myzeum's attempt in not focusing on the building and the stuff, but just focusing on the people. And the different cultural community voices and geographical voices that make up the narrative uh, is partly in response to those failed attempts and thinking, okay, if this hasn't worked the traditional way, then maybe we need to look at a new way um, and see if that leads us to this place and the space, because we do believe that location is important as a landing point. But I think in the 21st century, there's an opportunity to think about museums in a different way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, Myzeum started around 2015. 2014, uh, yeah. And it's been in the public forum in a more formal way with our brand since 2015. So this year would be five years since the idea, since its inception in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we're excited that 
there's really good traction and people are interested. And again, I'm not surprised, and maybe it's because I've spent my entire career in the heritage sector. Mm-hmm. People want to see this city have a museum, like it's that simple. And so I think if we get the right leadership and the stars align, and I believe they're starting to, we can make this happen this time around. It doesn't have to be, you know, 10 years, another conversation about, oh, it was that another failed attempt at a museum for Toronto. I don't, I don't think this needs to be that again. Uh, hopefully, and it seems like there, there's sort of a critical mass around this idea of a, a bricks and mortar museum that uh, was almost unanimously supported by city council in recent months. Uh, what, what happens now with that? And how do you keep that momentum going? Uh, my hope, uh, ambition is that, what museum has been doing with the public momentum, with the cultural organizations, the curators, the established cultural institutions that have been participating in this um, Toronto narrative telling, some historic, some present day, some future looking projects, that all of that provides the ideal seeds to make the building the reality that it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Because um, if the city is able to, through their leadership, make Old City Hall the place, Mm -hmm. then you already have this programming cycle that's underway. So in my ideal world, the sweet spot is those two things get married and live happily ever after. Um, Because then you have the landing point, which I think is what Old City Hall is ideally positioned to be, especially now hearing about the public library component. Our libraries are so phenomenal in this city. They really are big, juicy cultural centers that people are using and animating all the time. So that brings you a captive audience. I mean, anyone who knows Central Toronto knows the Central Reference Library is always busting at the seams and packed. So I believe we could have another um, uh, successful Central Library in that core uh, at Queen and uh, Young, or Queen and Bay at Old City Hall. So those things also make it more plausible. So you're, it's not suddenly this big empty building. You could picture the library taking up significant space. You could picture a Museum of Toronto taking up significant space. You could picture other potential cultural animators that are related to this type of history um, and cultural narrative about the city being present and making it a real nice, perfect kind of soup of people that are relevant to the city's cultural backbone, which is what I think heritage provides. It kind of gives you your um, spine. And speaking about that cultural backbone, uh, you, you mentioned you know earlier that uh, we, we do uh, in Toronto come from all over the world, uh, uh, many different uh, cultures. Uh, how, how can this be an opportunity to sort of uh, make sure that we uh, bring everyone to the table and, and showcase a lot of uh, cultures that have been erased or uh, marginalized in in the sort of uh, general generic story that we tell about uh, Toronto? Um, we've been lucky at Myzeum using themes because one of the challenges I remember years ago thinking about this when we were at the city looking at the malting silos was the fear of a pay-to-play system where wealthier communities could pay to you know, have their room. So the Jamaicans could pay for their room or the Jewish community could pay for their room or the Somali community could pay for a room or whatever. And that isn't how we live. So I think a museum should bring us together sometimes to rub up against each other where there's tensions that you have to deal with, which is kind of the reality of how we're functioning in this city. So looking at themes that talk about, for instance, what's just happened with our Museum Intersections Festival, 
arrival and departure, which goes directly to the idea of people coming here and leaving or people moving around here, which could hit the themes around indigenous communities and their presence in this region before European contact, because they were moving, they were arriving and departing and moving around all the time. Um, so I think themes create buckets where you'll end up with different people from different cultural communities, different economic backgrounds, different perspectives, being able to engage on uh, exhibition experiences that really covers everyone, but does throw, does so through ways that shows that connective tissue that really connects us all, which is that we've, in spite of everything, we live pretty well in this city, um, and we have been able to do so even with our flaws. So it's not perfect, so it's not all celebrate, it's also about commemoration, but in being able to do that celebration and commemoration in an honest way with as many different voices and perspectives as possible, I think you end up with something that is sustainable and is not a museum that's being created from an old model, mm -hmm. which would just result, I think, in tensions that are not necessary. We have, a, we have an opportunity to do it in a way that I think if a lot of old school museums could restart, they would probably do. Right. So why why make it just about things? Because things doesn't give you the full story of who this city is or who any city is. Yeah, and, and Toronto's history seems to be headline news these days. Uh, there's a you know a massive exploration of what once was uh, St. John's Ward, sort of in the area of uh, downtown or around where Nathan Phillips Square is mm -hmm. now. Uh, there, there's a massive dig uh, uh, around a former site uh, adjacent to the St. Lawrence Market as well, where we're really thinking about taking a look at our uh, historical uh, architecture stock. Um and, and as I said, the, the, there was massive support for this at City Council that said uh, we will have a new City Council soon and we will uh, maybe have a different uh, provincial government entirely. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you keep this momentum going and keep people interested uh, when it may be buffeted by uh, changing winds of politics? Well, I think this is where leadership at the community level is key. I, I think we... Uh, similar to how like the arts community will, you know, do like arts vote the conversations and have debates with um, political um, players and leaders in the process. I think we need that for the heritage and museum lens. So um, uh, we're planning to see if we can partner with Heritage Toronto, possibly because they always do a mayoral debate to help to make sure that the Museum of Toronto is a part of that mm -hmm. conversation. Uh, and to, as the conversations are going forward and the debates are happening around political change at city council and provincially that we make the museum a part of that conversation that it's an important part of the agenda mm -hmm. so we can hopefully instead of it being lost in the process that the heightened um that the, the process actually leads to a heightened discussion around it and becomes a part of the political platform so that candidates have to take a position on it, mm -hmm. which we can then hold them to after the election. So I think it's an opportunity and there's enough work that's been done in Myseum's last four years of programming for us to be able to leverage the uh, momentum from the community broadly to have people go to the debates and be present in saying, look, this museum is important to us um, and we want to make sure that you're committed to seeing it happen in your uh, next tenure. 
Hey, well, Karen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. We're approaching election season in Ontario and municipally, and voters are going to hear a lot of competing visions for what our province and its cities could be. Those visions can be enticing. They're a campaigner's bread and butter. But true vision includes a plan. If a candidate tells you they can solve the housing crisis, ask them how. If they tell you they want to make streets safer but aren't willing to invest money for safe infrastructure, tell them to take a hike. And don't be afraid to share your vision, what you want, and how you want to achieve it. City building is a lot of work. It takes time to reach our goals. But how you reach them is no secret. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your favorite curator, the folks at the Farmer's Market, and newly announced coaching staff of the Hamilton Ticats. As always, a like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Also, keep an eye out for the next issue of the magazine, which will be hitting shelves in the coming weeks. In the meantime, keep your eye on the prize. Cheers.